0: Okay I see that it is recording so we can get started. Hello everyone welcome back to the Popular Culture Studies Journal's Popular Culture Dialogue. There's a lot of popular culture in everything I say. Um, We're back now after a little bit of a summer break because yes it's still summer but academics do not get that much of a break (laughs) and neither do teachers of any ilk so always keep that in mind please. Um, here today we're talking about gender and popular culture, and I have with me three of my esteemed colleagues, peers, scholars from around the world who are going to be talking about this. And I'm going to throw it over to each one of them individually to introduce themselves and what brings them here today. So first I'm going to go to a um, first timer on the dialogue. We're going to go over to Ashley Morgan. I think you muted
1: you, there you go. <laughs> Hi, thank you very much uh, for introducing me. Um, my name is Dr Ashley Morgan, I am a masculinities academic in the Cardiff School of Art and Design in the UK. My research is about masculinities and the way in which ma- masculinities is re- are represented in popular culture. I've written on Sherlock Holmes, the television programmes, um, I have written and elementary. I've written on um, pop stars and men's clothing and hybrid masculinity. Um, I've just had an abstract accepted in a book, um, uh, The Intellect Guide for Men's Fashion, on queer eye and the infallible realness of um, men's bodies uh, in queer eye. Uh, There's probably other things as well that I can't quite remember, but that's me. Masculinity is my thing and the ways in which they're represented in popular culture.
0: Fantastic. I can't wait to hear more of uh, your research and I should probably look into it because we teach a masculinity and communication class and it sounds like a lot of that research could be very useful for the things we're trying to help our students understand. So thank you for being here, Ashley. Thank you for having me. And I'm going to go... Thank you, and I'm going to go down from Ashley then to Laura.
2: Hi, everyone. So my name is Laura Alvarez Trigo, and I'm a PhD candidate uh, in American Studies at Universidad de Alcalá in Spain. And um, I wanted to be part of this dialogue because I'm very interested, of course, in popular culture, but specifically in gender studies, and I've done a specialization in gender equality. And um, I've, I've worked also in, in analyzing how gender is presented in different popular culture products, and I think that it's something very important that we should look at and study and, you know, work with, with everyone, not, not only academics, not only within academia in like analyzing every single detail, but getting to understand how we can critically in, and, and with a greater media literacy get to, to the greater public about these these issues and how to maybe change them.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I know in terms of being here in the United States, we've had a lot of discussion lately about transgender and sports and that's been coming up and And there's still a lot of pushback against the idea of gender as a social construct. So I'm, I'm glad to have you here in an, taking on this this topic is a really important one at this time. So thank you. And then we will go over to Christine.
3: Hey, Uh, so I'm Christine Tomlinson. I'm a lecturer at the University of California, Irvine. And I also do research with the Digital Democracies Institute at Simon Fraser University. Uh, for the most part, a lot of my work looks at gender and culture in video games, but I also look at things a little bit more broadly in popular culture as well, uh, sort of focusing on not only representations, but also gender's effects on consumption of popular culture and what those dynamics look like. So excited to be here and chatting today.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for being here, Christine. And I'm, I want to I definitely talk to you more about the idea of how gender impacts how we receive all of this as well. I did my dissertation on that. So I'm glad to hear more work is still being done on that. All right, so as I told everyone before we started, I've got one question that I kind of want to use to jumpstart our conversation. And that is, how does popular culture shape and inform our ideas about gender? And whoever would like to go first, feel free to jump on in.
1: I, I think what is interesting about popular culture is how slow it is to change and embrace things that are much less of a stereotype, a stereotypical understanding of the way in which gender is uh, is lived every day. Um, we get very used to gender tropes in popular culture, and one of the things I think is quite interesting is how slow it's been to change in the past ten years. There are differences apparent now, if you think about things like Modern Family and um, Schitt's Creek, there is particularly American um, popular popular uh, popular culture television programmes, It is it does seem terribly slow to change and if you think about things like um, The Golden Girls, when that first started it was supposed to have a gay character in it. And it was going to be really, really cutting edge. Um, so the women were all going to live with a housekeeper, and the housekeeper was a man, and and a gay man, and very openly gay. And and it was the same in Friends. So one of the characters was supposed to be gay. I think it's probably either Chandler or um, the other one, but I can't remember. Um, but it it's really, really, really slow. And I think it. I I think it's interesting how slow things are to change and you know Lynn Siegel talks about that doesn't she in terms of slow motion especially in terms of um, embracing different kinds of masculinities but I'm still very interested in time and the way way in which different kinds of uh, genders are represented or not really I think it's also country specific as well.
0: Thinking about from the, at least from the American perspective, I would agree because I know it seems at times that the United States is kind of stuck on the strong female character and that once, once we created the strong female character, that's like as much, you know, progressive in terms of gender as we got. And it's been stuck there for about 20 years now, it seems. Mm
3: -hmm. It's also kind of interesting considering the reciprocal nature of popular culture, right? Like Mm -hmm. as a reflection of society, as well as an influence on it. And it, it seems like that's, that lag that we get is very interesting when you consider how the rest of culture and the rest of society seems to be moving forward on a lot of these issues, or at least becoming a lot of, a a lot more aware of them. Uh, And yet you have this very delayed reaction, which, probably has some influence in delaying some of the changes that we might be seeing in other social areas like legislation for example
2: yeah i i I agree with what you once said and i think something that ashley mentioned that it's very interesting it's this idea of the tropes and how i think that influences a lot how slow it changes because it's easy to use tropes right if if you want to if the mainstream popular culture kind of I'm thinking of Netflix and things like this you want to create content fast a lot of it cheap it's cheaper to create tropes and rely on these tropes you don't have to think about it much you don't have to have very good people doing the work behind it so there's that continuation and then perpetuation of the of the stereotypes and the system kind of because you don't it's not worth it to, to look for something else, to do something different, to respond to that social change in that sense. And I think I wanted to add that I think it's, it's also very interesting to think about how gender is shaped from the point of view of, of audiences in the sense that we, so of course there's a, to a certain extent um, a social change as Christine was, was saying, but I think we also tend to accept stereotypes uh, pretty readily in a sense. Um, Because we we often think about consuming media in terms of media effects, so how much the media affect our behavior and how much we accept the values that it transmits to us. And I think that it's also very important to think not only in terms of media effects, but in terms of uses and gratifications, the theory of uses and gratifications, because there's, um, so two of the uses that were identified at some point um, already many decades ago was identification and the enhancement of social interactions. And I think these two are very important because we accept the values, we reproduce these behaviors because we think that this is good. Like in the, ser- in the TV show or in the movie, something that happens to the female character when she wears lipstick um, you know, you, you tend to use lipstick because you create that association. You know that it's gonna be liked socially to, in, to a sense. And maybe not you, as, and I'm thinking of myself as a child, when I was a child, certain things, it, it's not only me that I thought because I saw this in a movie was good, but my mother will tell me this, that go, oh, you see in that movie, this girl is this, and you should do the same thing because this is what's socially approved of. And and this is very important too, I think, in terms of fan studies. When we think of fan studies, this is something that is very thought about in fan studies as well. When we do studies asking fans why what is that do you find what's the uses and gratifications that you find in that particular fan practice? And we reproduce behaviors also. Not only in the mainstream, but we, when we look for alternative gender identification, we tend to do these kind of reproductions in group reproductions as well. So if you're in Tumblr and you're in kind of in a non-binary community, you tend to do the kind, the, the, the same kind of things like, um, I don't know, like dye your hair crazy colors. And I've done that. And, you know, there's this kind of communal experience in group experience and social approval that's always behind these identification patterns, I think
0: social animal has its benefits and its drawbacks when it
1: comes to these matters. While you were talking there, Laura, one of the things that struck me was I wonder what would have happened if, say, non-stereotypical characters had actually been allowed to appear in popular culture in the past, and what a difference that might have made. If we think about the uh, characters in Friends and perhaps the Golden Girls, because they're the ones I can think of, what would have been the? Would they have been as popular? Might they have been more popular? Because it suggests that the lack of presence of people suggests that um, it would have been problematic for uh, studios to have characters that were non-sort of stereotypical straight, for example. Um, but what is interesting to think about, I think, is is whether audience reaction would have been much better and much more established and perhaps might have given some of these these programs greater longevity and I know friends is sort of, you know, in in all of our sort of memories really I don't know but and I I wonder whether that I mean I know it's moot, but I do slightly think that I do I do wonder you know what would have been the impact of having characters that were not sort of stereotypical in terms of their gender behaviors
0: uh, and appearances. And and something that's interesting just regarding like golden girls is the fact of how much the, um, gay lesbian community kind of used golden girls, even after they didn't have that, um, caretaker anymore, just used the characters themselves, the women as a way to experiment with gender too. I thought that was really fascinating how, because the, the actress, the actors, um, were themselves very vocal when it came well, at least in certain circles, very vocal at that time when it came to gay rights and to the AIDS crisis and everything too. So it is they, they maybe weren't able to reach the mainstream, but they were definitely reaching certain populations and having that connection with certain populations.
1: Yeah, well what I think is interesting in in Britain is that there have been attempts to have, Non-stereotypical characters are sort of normative within um, television shows. Uh, there was a big, um, a big push about fifteen years ago for characters who were constantly. If you were a gay character, the storyline would be that you were coming out. What was what would be the what will be the significance and the narrative around your coming out? Who would know? Who would not know? Where was the drama created there? And what I've noticed is quite a shift between coming out stories and you know an assumed heteronormativity and where it's not mentioned at all and we just accept the characters having relationships with like we do in Schitt's Creek characters who just have relationships with people of the same sex and then being unproblematic rather than oh this person's going to be coming out and oh my goodness how is this person going to react to him to the Coming out, and there's been a massive shift away from that. And I think that's really, really positive because it suggests much greater agency for people, doesn't
3: it? Christine? Yeah, yeah I think one of the really interesting things about trying to figure out if you could implant a different type of storyline or a different type of character during another time frame is for popular culture to, uh, as Carrie Lynn said, reach the mainstream, it needs to be resonant in some way. It needs to be salient for people in whatever society this popular Mm -hmm. culture is is attempting to sort of place itself. Um, And so if you have a story that isn't really in line with a lot of thinking within that broader cultural context, it's probably not gonna get very popular. It'll probably have kind of a niche audience and people will watch it and be interested in it but it won't have that mass popularity. And I, I think that is where those baby steps come from. So you, you had this proliferation of those coming out stories because that's kind of where the rest of society was at. And so, yeah, that, that is some evidence that we are getting away from that kind of level of discomfort with a lot of these stories. And I think we'll probably see something somewhat similar happening with gender. Although I think some of the shows coming out now have skipped a few of those steps uh, probably showing that we're a little bit more comfortable with these things, probably because of those stories about sexuality. But it is, it is very interesting cause you can kind of track where society is at jumping back and forth between where culture's at, what's in popular culture, what becomes popular. I
0: think there's also maybe a transmedia aspect that can be brought into this too. Cause I mean, I study professional wrestling and I'm also a wrestling fan and I follow AEW, AEW, has shows on TNT, so pretty mainstream cable and they're gonna be moving to TBS which is even more mainstream if you look at their programming. But at the same time, it also started from a YouTube channel and they had um, BTE being the elite. And what's interesting is there are definitely connections between the stories of what happens in BTE and what happens on the TNT show. But in BTE on YouTube, the men engage in far more homosociality and far more breaking of masculine stereotypes, especially the, the traditional masculine stereotypes associated with professional wrestling. Um, they're, they're always talking about loving each other and they're kissing each other and they're just like very affectionate towards one another. And that doesn't get any screen time on TNT. It, it doesn't. It's like there's you know, that, that media barrier and all of a sudden the corporation says, no, we don't want to see that on, on TNT. You can do whatever you want on YouTube, but not on TNT. So at having that transmedia story though allows them to produce content that's more suitable, I suppose, for the mainstream and then also have the content that their niche populations may be more interested in at the same time.
2: Yeah, I, I think that precisely because of this separation between what's the mainstream and the digital realm and mm. s- streaming as well, uh, because because it creates more niche content. Like you don't have if you are a corporation and you have to take the risk of doing something against the gender norm or you know LGBTQ plus inclusive, it's easier because only people who already agree with what you are. Agree with what you are portraying are the ones who are going to watch it, like you might get a bit of backlash in the beginning. Like, it, I, I think this happened with she Ran, the Princesses of Power. It happened with this um, the, the Last of Us, is it called? The video game with the um, lesbian protagonist. Or maybe it's something else I can't remember the title. Uh, but also you know you include these these lgbt characters and these type of things and then some people get angry some heterosexual white men get angry but then you get you get your niche and you don't have to actually face that backlash because it's very contained it's not, it's, and it's not like before when it was the golden girls everyone was watching the golden girls because it was like practically the one tv show that was popular at the time and everyone was watching that so I, I think maybe, maybe in a sense we, we might be going backwards because it's not that changes are not so visible. They are not on the TV that everyone is watching. Everyone's not watching anything now. There's no one single thing that everyone's watching that you can say that proves that this is changing, that representation is moving forward somehow.
1: I think, though, that there's been a greater democratisation of access to media and production and who, who gets involved with it. And a far greater scope now of things. While I think you're 100% right that um, it, things are a bit more niche, there, there does seem to be a bit more of a across the board you can you can like what you like, which is kind of what you were saying, can't you? But there are um, there's now much more scope for you to do that. Whereas in the past, you had the television on or off, or the radio on or off, and 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 you know, and I'm old enough to remember that. So, um, but I, see, I think that's quite a positive thing because I think the niche thing is allows people to engage. You know, we don't know how many people are coming in and out of the system. Of, of trying and having a look or playing and thinking about it <clears throat> so i think that's really i think it's a really positive thing that now far more formats that people can engage with where they can try try information out and, and see what fits or what they like or don't like <coughs> excuse me
0: christine what, what are your thoughts on this one
3: So I don't know if this is going to to derail things, uh, and I apologize if it does, (laughs) but I've been thinking while you were talking a little bit about how people read popular culture differently as well. Um, So coming from different identities and different backgrounds, you're going to pick up on different things in the pop culture that you're watching. And so in particular, I'm thinking about um, Hannibal and Good Omens and how they've been read very differently depending on the audience that's watching them. Um, So Hannibal And Good Omens both have these kind of overt queer themes to them uh, and play around with ideas of sexuality and gender. And a lot of audiences that aren't from like, I guess, especially queer backgrounds, don't read any of that into it, which I think is another interesting piece of this puzzle. When you do have a more subtle story, potentially, or even if it is more overt in these cases, it may be completely missed which is also interesting in terms of thinking about how popular culture can push the rest of culture forward or not, if people just aren't really picking up on these storylines that are being presented.
0: Yeah, it goes back to the uh, concept, I guess, of the polysemous text, and the idea that, you know, your polyvalent your polyvalient audience, coming from these different perspectives, um, whether you want to Go interpretive communities route, or you want to go attitudinal route, they're going to interpret, engage, in it, and receive different things from these texts, which makes me think that it'd be an interesting case study with um, MCU's Eternals coming up and how Eternals is meant to bring more of the um, uh, queer identity into the forefront for the MCU. It'll be interesting to see how people react to that, because thinking about the backlash, people had huge backlash to Captain Marvel and the idea of of, a movie focused on a a woman just to start. So it'll be interesting to see how overt or covert the, the text is encoded, essentially, to convey these messages and then how different people of different communities respond to it.
3: And sort of interesting on the, the topic of Captain Marvel, too, because I feel like when you looked at how people were talking about that movie and in particular how people were talking about the character and the actress, a lot of the discomfort would go back to things like, oh, well, why isn't she smiling? And we saw this happen recently with Horizon Zero Dawn as well, which picked up traction on Twitter because someone had photoshopped her with like this very... Uh, like pageant kind of makeup smiling look for a post-apocalyptic video game. Um, but that's getting back to that idea of gender norms as well because people do react to these things that they perceive as a, a sort of a slight against those norms or, or even just stereotypes that we expect.
0: Yeah. As I mentioned, I did my dissertation to show my age back in um, 2008. So I did a study where I asked people to recall their engaging with media products they saw as meant for men and meant for women. And I asked men and women. It was very binary at the time because that's how we were mostly, or at least how I was thinking back then. Um, And it was interesting because I also asked them how they saw their engaging with the media product from this perspective of what's appropriate given for men and for women. And at least in 2008, the women that I interviewed did not seem to have as much of a problem engaging with things meant for men as the men did, and they could recall a lot of different things, from *Sex in the City*, which they were watching with their girlfriend or wife, to you know *My Little Pony* that they were watching as when they were a kid. Which so that was not the good *My Little Pony*; that was the 1980s *My Little Pony*, which ugh, um, at least from my perspective. Um, And the men were having a harder time um, breaking out of what was appropriate because they had their fathers and they had other men who were telling them not to do things or even worse, making fun of them. And when you have that type of messaging coming in, in terms of the norms, and it's from people you actually care about to some extent, it's going to be very hard to break out of that. And to see value in something that you don't think you should be watching or engaging with.
1: It's interesting. I was having a conversation with some friends over the weekend about um, Ghostbusters and the ways in which Ghostbusters mm. was reimagined as a female ensemble cast, and how everybody felt about it. And, and I just remember saying, "Yeah, I thought it was really, really good. It was interesting." And one of the problems is, I think, when when very traditional, very well-loved things are reimagined, and say sex is changed, and I've written about this as well in um elementary, where
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, Dr. Watson becomes a woman, and the absolute egregious backlash about that and um you know, and the way in which it was pitched as, oh, so sort of Sherlock's going to get off with Watson just because one is a man and one is a woman. And I'm like, God, have you never seen a platonic relationship before? Because actually nobody has. So what, I think one of the things that we were thinking about when we were talking about Ghostbusters is that it was all right to have a female version, as long as everybody remembered that the male version was the better one. And that that seemed very important, really. And as if, as if the female version, you know, was always going to be a bit inferior, you know, regardless of what what was going to happen. And and I, f- I found that really interesting because for me, and I'll just say personally, not as an academic or anything, if if there isn't a woman on the screen in something, it just doesn't engage me at all. Why am I looking at a load of men doing things? My area is masculinity, as I said at the beginning, so I'm really well versed in seeing lots of male tropes, but I personally, I find it really hard to watch things where there is no female content of any description at all. You know, I just, I'm just very disengaged
0: from it, really. Yeah, and especially when, usually when the woman is on screen, you think of, um, you know, genres like action adventure and sci-fi and horror and things like that, Even if they're strangers, if you have a man man and a woman at the beginning of the film, somehow they end up together, which is why I love um, Kong Skull Island because you obviously have the potential there for Hiddleston and Larson's characters to get together, but they don't, and that's fantastic. They're just treated as equals. And I think that was a wonderful way to handle that.
1: Yeah, the problem with that is that platonic relationships aren't very sexy. According to other people, whereas I, I think they, they are a bit more what happens in real life you're much more likely to have a, a, a platonic relationship with anybody than you are to have a sexual relationship with everybody and but but on on screen there's such a lot of investment in um, uh, given to creating tension around will they won't they um, which I think is, is is very interesting. And I'm very interested in representations of platonic love
0: because there are so few so few of them. Mm-hmm. Now I think thinking about the reception angle, I should go see the fan fiction for Kong Skull Island and see how much they were paired together and how much shipping wasn't revolving around those characters. Cause if it cause we are so trained for that will they won't they, that if we don't actually get it in the text, we might just, you know
2: produce it ourselves. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that because it connects to what you the the study that you did that you mentioned um, how women and men responded to the other's content and also to the will they wonder trope? Uh, one one book that really influenced me in how I think about gender um content how gender is represented in popular culture and how it is read as either male or female again as you said in this binary conception of that uh is Janice Radway's reading the romance. I don't know if you're familiar with this book, but it's it's so interesting. And I think it was it was from the from the early 80s and the, she did a study on how women read um romance novels and how, how this was you know, seen as kind of lower culture because women were consuming it. And at the same time, it was something very female-like to, to wish for that romance. And, and I think that's it's very funny how, how much in the mainstream it is that this idea of romance is, is still associated with a female consumption when it's something so ubiquitous. It's like, it's in everything, as you said, it's in action movies, it's in science fiction movies. And I do have that same sense. I'm, I'm watching these science fiction movies sometimes and, and you know, there's a woman and then there's a man and there's this tension. And like, I just keep concentrating through the whole film, just asking, please don't
1: get together, please don't get together. And almost always they do, of course, it, you know. See, yes, I mean I find that really interesting in um, the British Doctor Who, where which I wrote about a couple of years ago. Where um, even in the early ones of the sixties, up until the reboot, and then the, then after the reboot in two thousand and five, um, Doctor Who has sexual relationships with people, even though he's an alien, he's a Gallifreyan. He has sexual relationships with women and or men and he has children and he has a wife at one point point. and I don't think it was that obvious in the early iterations of Doctor Who but it's but the reboot with the 10th Doctor particularly was extremely sexed up and I don't know to what extent that helped its global popularity because it also changed again with the 12th doctor, I think, who became more or less an old older man like Doctor Who had been originally. Um, and there was far less, I think there's a point in which where he says to um, Clara, I'm not your boyfriend, even though I've even though I might have indicated that that I think something like I you know I'm not your boyfriend, even though I've indicated in the past that perhaps you think I am, something like that. Um, but sex is then removed. And, you know, there may be relations between other creatures and other people, but, you know, in the reboot, it was extremely obvious that here was a pansexual character who was, you know, an alien in all intents and purposes. So I think that, I I think, I think that the sort of introduction of sex and where it is and where it isn't is also really interesting.
0: It seemed at the time, at least I thought at the time, that when they rebooted it, first with Eccleston and then definitely with Tenet, that whole, you know, tension with with Rose, Billy Piper's character, seemed intended to try to bring more women, more young women, more girls to watch the series. Because I think at least at that time, there had this idea of the fandom had atrophied to, it's just really... um, appealing to boys and to men. Um, and that was kind of where fandom was at overall, it seems in the 1980s and into the 1990s that you know, fandom was a boy thing, which is potentially what's causing a lot of the problems still today with Gamergate and Comics, Gate and Ghost Bros and all these things. But it, it, I think we, we did see this intention in the reboot to try to make it appeal to more women. Using stereotypes about romance and and you know male sexiness and things like that.
3: It's sort of interesting because you you saw the same thing uh, with the first Deadpool movie in terms of how it was marketed, uh, and it became this big kind of joke that they had these billboards that were playing up a, a romantic story in it to try to get women to come see it. It was a little bit tongue in cheek. But I I also do work on romance and video games. And it's very interesting because as we can see with how people consume other kinds of media and what people are interested in, how often this kind of thing is put in place in media, it's broadly appealing. Like people in general like those romantic stories even though we still have this very strong association of romance for whatever reason with femininity and women in particular
0: and I think the inclusion of uh within Deadpool the inclusion of Ryan Reynolds who has a history of being in these rom-coms as the lead and and I think that also kind of fed into that too because then you suddenly have the fangirls of Ryan Reynolds and you want to be able to bring them into it but then as so often happens in comic books the female character and video games as well. The female character is, you know, fridged. They're captured. They're the damsel in distress. And so there's that whole problem that is, is still happening. And I think like, again, with Kong Skull Island, I mean, Brie Larson does kind of become the damsel in distress <laughs> towards the end of that movie. So it's still happening even there.
1: There is a bit though in um, Jurassic World that I just want to I just want to put in um, because J- Jurassic World I, I saw it and I thought oh this is just egregious stereotypes all over the place you know and it, you know to be honest I know it's not aimed at me and that's fine um, but there comes a point there's this so such a beautiful feminist scene where the character of um, Bryce Howard goes into a pen with a light to bring the massive dinosaur out. And even now I've got hairs on the back of my neck because it's one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. And it's right at the end of the film, the whole time she's sort of, you know, her entire character is wasted and she's all ripped blouse and, you know, a little bit in distress. Not much, but a little bit. But um, but, but that that moment in that film, I think, me I I want the whole film to be that because it's so powerful because all the time it's the male expertise in bringing dinosaurs up it's it's my information over yours and she's just she's just the admin girl she isn't but you know um but in the end it's she in a very very subtle and very very brave way saves everything by bringing this dinosaur out and I, I I think it's such a such a beautiful thing. But I also feel it's co- it's completely wasted in the film, but it's the bit I remember the best in, in a film that I probably wouldn't watch normally, but I have that, I have done. And I'm so excited. I've watched Skull Island with my teenage, with my friend's teenage kids as well, because it's really not the kind of film I would ever watch, but it's really nice that I, um, yes, I don't feel so old and crummy, not having seen these things, but that particular bit in um, Jurassic World is quite, it's quite an interesting attempt to change these bravery stereotypes because mm-hmm. she ends up being the most brave character
0: but and, and still in the back of my mind though i keep going to the fact that she was doing she was running on high heels all the time in that mm-hmm. that movie mm-hmm. and it makes me think of this tension that laura you mentioned earlier about you know you see someone being successful wearing lipstick and then you start thinking you have to, to wear lipstick. And I think of, I've only ever seen the first Hunger Games movie and I've, I've never read the books or anything, but I was so upset in the Hunger Games movie at how they went through this whole big pageantry of, of you know the makeup and the costuming and everything, which I, I understand now looking back the point of that. But at the time, I was so upset because it just it it seemed to reinforce this hyper femininity, hyper sexuality um, in action movies about how the woman has to look a very specific way in order to become that strong female character. And like you can go back to Buffy, and Buffy was doing exactly the same thing too. So is is do we see? And I think we see, I just had this thought, I think we see more men who don't fit conventional beauty standards being in that lead action role than we do women. And I think that might still be a tension that we haven't totally figured out how to handle yet.
1: Yeah, I think isn't isn't that going on with Kate Winslet at the moment in um, the drama that she's in, where she's insisting on not uh, being uh, airbrushed in the in the images of her selling the show i think it's a netflix show isn't it the mayor of something or she's the mayor i think
2: it, at least in spain i think it's an hbo it's a mayor of east town and That's she right. she also yeah. refused to have her belly removed in a sex scene she's in a sex scene and you can see her belly and she refused to have that
1: raised as well it's hard because you know kate winslet is conventionally attractive in you know you can't in the sense that, you know, she's the blonde woman that you would, with long blonde hair, you would see anywhere, sadly, rather than, you know, but what I think is interesting as well, and is changing a little bit, if you see the character of Stevie in Chitts Creek with her plaid, her plaid shirt, as I believe you call them, and, um, and her hair, and a sort of, you know, and there's a, there's a big sort of play on her putting makeup on, and she just looks like a clown. And, you know, everybody's a bit terrified because I think the dad buys her makeup because he's trying, to, he's trying to spruce her up and she's like, no, I just work in a, you know, in a motel, like that. And, you know, and she's not, she's not this incredible glamour puss, but, but the problem is she isn't as main a character as the other characters
0: are. Well, and it's like... Catherine O'Hara, right? Sorry? And it, it's, it's Catherine O'Hara plays her? I remember correctly. No. Part of okay. Stevie
1: is the one who runs the motel. Kathnore is the mum.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah, I think I think that this is this has a lot to do with something that we haven't mentioned yet. And it's who is behind the camera, right? Like who's writing these characters? Who decides that it makes sense for this woman to run in hills uh, while she's running away from dinosaurs? Like this, you know, if someone who's ever worn hills have written this, maybe. Or maybe maybe someone said it, but you need also someone to listen to this person who mentioned that this was maybe not a great thing to do and like it didn't make sense. And and actually that you mentioned Mayor of East Town, I thought this about this series as well, because it's a series that has this very strong female protagonist, which is an not old, but you know, old for like movie standards. Old woman who's still very beautiful, as you said, but you know, she's not that thin. She's not that young, and and it's it's funny to me because it also ties in with with uh, what we mentioned in the beginning about um, how how um, how we we still keep these 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 beauty standards and how we we perpetuate these stereotypes because we expect them to be there. So I I was thinking this as well. When when we have these these very strong female characters, but they still have to fit these beauty standards. They are strong characters, but this is as far as we've gotten in our feminist approach to these characters. And and this was the same in the um, what's the title of the series? The one with the with the chess queen queen's gambit. Uh, and this is the same. It's a series about the story of a woman. Uh, you know, making it in a men's world, but it's written, it's based on a book written by a man. It's written by men, it's directed by men. And, you know, it's, and it was the, I was saying the mayor of Easttown, because it's the same thing, it's written by men. Most of, I think most of the people involved are men. And I think it's, it's very interesting to see how these fe- strong female characters that approach this sort of mainstream feminism, kind of it's a response to that. But they're still written by men so you know there's something amiss.
1: I, I was just thinking as you were speaking there about Catherine Bigelow and um representation of um men and women in Point Break and the way in which all the true all the stereotypes are out there there's oldest older male stereotypes there's young female stereotypes but but it's interesting that she's behind the camera it's the same with her Locker as well isn't it that she directed the characters are relentlessly, because it's hit Locker set in war, the characters are relentlessly, um, or A, they're sort of on, switched on because they're soldiers, and B, they're very, very masculine. So I think the way in which she does that is, is incredible actually. But the, you know, there are so few female directors and as you say, so so few female writers to put their, to put a different perspective on things and how difficult that is. In the first place.
2: Yeah, I think this is also a way that we perpetuate tropes because, you know, if you have, if you fit the system, if you're a white male, heterosexual, cis guy, and you like seeing women being submissive or something like this, you're it's easier for you to reproduce it because there's nothing, it's what we were saying before, who, where are you placed as an audience and what you see in a product. So if what you see fits your worldview and your, this, your hegemonic system that benefits you, there's no way you're going to challenge that. You, underst- you There's nothing for you to challenge. So you have this this singing Queen's Gambit when she's at her lowest and drunk and drugged. And she's like looking super beautiful, like with her long cardigan in her underwear and like laid like this in the sofa. When I'm, I'm at my lowest, I don't, don't look like this. No one does. But she does because she's pretty and you know.
3: I think part of that also, there are a lot of intersections with what people assume audiences want to see. Uh, And there, there may not be any truth to it, but there's this idea of this model of what's actually going to make money. And we see it in movies and television, we see it in video games. So, on, on one end of that, I don't know if th- this is probably still true, but this is older information that I'm working with. But uh, projects headed by people of color and women were a lot less likely to get studio support, a lot, lot less likely to get funding because people just feel like, oh, these aren't things that are going to make us money. It's starting to shift a little bit, I think. Um, not so much in video games, though. But that's the other element I think that we're kind of up against is when you have this assumption that. Stereotypes and tropes are going to be the thing that's salient with your audience, and your audience wants to see this, and you also assume there's a particular type of audience that you're aiming for, I think it's a lot harder to break out of these patterns that we've established.
0: Which then suggests if the producers are just appealing to what exists in the audience, then it's not the producers who need to change as much as it is the audience.
1: As you were talking there, Christine, I was just thinking about the film Begin Again, which has Kieran Knightley in it and uh, Mark Ruffalo. And one of the things that's fantastic about that film is that there's no particular happy ending or indeed an ending for her, especially. And I think it's really. um, What's the word I'm looking for? I think it's quite exciting to have uh, a denouement where there isn't one. And and I think that's a very risky thing to do. I don't know how popular the film was particularly, but it seemed like a very risky thing to do, particularly for the female character, that she she doesn't end up coupled up or, uh, you know, in a fantastic job and, you know, whatever it is that happens in these things. Uh, She just ends up cycling into the distance. And what it seems to me is that perhaps audiences don't like these untied things. They like to to know what's happening at the end. And I don't know much about the process of... um, audience testing maybe that's something you 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 guys could tell me about but I, I i think often perhaps that's audience testing is the problem because the bit you want to sometimes the thing that you want to happen in the film like ambiguity never happens because people don't like it but actually for some of us we prefer it because then, then it allows our imaginations to fill in the gaps doesn't it but that's not really what films are about are they I guess. And I wonder, does that happen in like video as well, Christine? Where there's some sort of uh-huh. ambiguity around things?
3: Sometimes, more often in, in sort of like indie video games that are not the big major studios that are very much like, okay, we want to make millions of dollars off of this game. Um, there's a lot more room for experimentation for indie studios. And so you're more likely to see something where it's not quite an ending in those kinds of games. Uh, I was also thinking, though, while we're talking about this, and I don't know if this is, again, too far off topic, but another kind of interesting thing that's happening is with digital streaming, like Netflix, for example, taking big data information about audiences and what people are interested in and tailoring the uh, thumbnails for different things to try to entice audiences that may not actually be interested in this particular pop culture object. So I think that's going to be another interesting element of this that we'll start studying at some point as well.
2: So I think that what Ashley, Ashley was saying, it's actually interesting because we, I think sometimes producers tend to assume that audiences want like something different because they just say, we did this and they liked it. So we're going to do the same thing again and again and again. And I think if you actually look at the trends in movies that have been more, let's say, risky or more different or more moving away of these tropes, they, they've actually in general been quite successful like both TV shows and movies that are very different, they are successful. I think it's, easy, it's just easier for them to dumb down the audience and do the cheaper thing for them, which is to, what I was saying before, to reproduce the same tropes and assume that this is what people like. And I think that what you said about data, uh, it's, it's also interesting because they reduce producing movies to doing, and there's, I think, at least to my mind, there's certain TV shows and movies that I watch these days that I can tell they've been done with kind of an algorithm, like using the data saying, what do people like? And I was I was, I was thinking this with this uh, movie about the Sherlock Holmes sister, Nola Holmes. And I, this felt to me like done with these algorithms, like what are people like in these days? They like feminism, they, they like Helena Bohan Carter, they like Sherlock Holmes, they like mysteries, they like a love story. They like uh, teenage girls having adventures. So let's put all that together and make a really crappy movie. (laughs) And, And this is just, to me, it's just easier to make audiences seem dumb. It's like audiences, no, they don't like different things. So we're just gonna keep producing the same thing. And it's just moving, shifting the blame to the audience that doesn't want something different when I don't think it's necessarily the case.
0: That is interesting, Laura, because it also makes me think about this distinction between pop culture and popular culture and that assumption, when that older assumption with popular culture, that pop, that it's just like in the moment and then it, it explodes big and then it goes away. And you think about how like movies like that, and we've had this, I mean, throughout the history of movies, of course, they might have been big within a particular historical, material, social, cultural moment. But then because they were so specific to that moment, they don't really last beyond it because they don't really say anything else because they were so geared towards the moment. And I'm thinking even going back to Captain Marvel, how you had a, 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 I think it was a husband wife directorial team on it. So you did have a woman behind the camera helping to produce it, but it seemed that it was so much commenting on our social and cultural discussion that time about um, the Me Too movement and you know why don't you smile more and how you have <laughs> Captain Marvel actually respond to a guy who says, well, why aren't you smiling more? And, and, you, and, and how she defeats the, the bad guy and she's like, well, I don't have to prove anything to you. It's so specific to the moment that I wonder how people in 30 years are gonna look back on that and what they're going to think about it. Are they going to, is it going to have a longevity or is it just more of a pop within the moment speaking to a particular moment? And it's, it is interesting then, because if, if you feed into specific audiences, because audiences are very situationally bounded, you do that too much, you you know, it's, it's very, um, short tail model. You want to get people right away at the beginning and you don't worry about a long tail and, and getting people months, years later.
1: But I, I think, are we not back to the same thing that Laura was talking about originally, which was the sort of the democratization and the niche element there of, of media and popular culture. And, and the fact that now is you can you can get what you like very easily, whereas in the past you had to search
0: right but that's to an extent because you have like disney plus and you have peacock and you have hbo max and blah 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 but those are controlled by corporations that are controlling your access to their archives like the fact that amazon just bought up mgm movies from 1980s onward if they don't want those movies out they won't put those out and you're not going to have access to them anymore disney once they bought 20th Century Fox, started taking 20th Century Fox movies and putting them in their lovely vault so that, for example, independent movie theaters couldn't show them anymore. And this is actually something my partner Chris Olson is working on for his um, dissertation because it is that question then if, if we stop having access to the physical media because we have that ar- Sorry about that momentary glitch there. (laughs) So backing up a little bit, um, if if we stop having the access to the physical medium, whether as you know, Blu-rays or whatever discs or in the theater, because the argument is, well, now everything is online, but it's online controlled by corporate interests is, is it truly online? Is it truly that we're able to access anything that we want?
2: And I think this also affects how, because I think it's it's easier with video games because Christine was mentioning about the indie game producers and it's there's, there's kind of more of a community that wants to access and produce this type of indie games. And there's that culture there. But with movies, because we have so much kind of this, what you were saying, this pop culture in the moment, consume it and pay for the subscription to this hundred and the plus the extra that Disney plus charges and whatever. But then you you don't look for something more. You don't look for that something that it's different from, from what they are producing. So I, as I was saying, I think they're producing kind of the same thing because it's easier for them and you dumb down the audience. But that audience also doesn't look for something something different that might be there in more indie producers or smaller producers because you don't have to you have so much that you don't have to go out of your way and I was I was thinking about this at some point I was talking about this with a friend with music as well because we have Spotify and there's all this content in Spotify and we were when we were younger and I was I was growing up in the 90s I'm not that old but still, when I was younger, I was still, you know, I still use Torrents to look for different music and alternative music that I liked. And I don't think younger people are doing that anymore. I'm not doing that anymore because I have the music that I have. And it's easier for me not to have to look in, in the sketchy websites and to download something that's more indie, something that I would have maybe listened to a while ago.
1: I don't know, are we, are we not back to the sort of, um, isn't it easier though for people to share their musical interests now through things like Spotify? I know people send them to me they say, oh, you know, if you're interested in this kind of thing, do you want to listen to my Spotify? And, and I'm like, I've never heard this before. This is great. And, and I do the same and we sort of share stuff. And I think, I don't know, if you think about sort of David Gauntlet and what he says about the way in which people are much more likely to produce than... Um, consume, although we always consume all the time, don't we? But it is possible to produce areas that perhaps haven't happened before. And I wonder whether Spotify is one of those that, yes, I I completely concur with you because I've got an Amazon Echo thing and I'm sitting here working some days and I'm thinking, oh, God, I just need to listen to something, but I don't know what to listen to. And yet I know my friends have got millions and millions of songs on their Spotify's account and all I have to do is go into there and download one. But I do, and I don't, and I remember, and I don't. Um, but so maybe that's the thing. Maybe because we know it's there, we don't need to access it as much as perhaps, perhaps we tried to when we couldn't find it as easily.
3: Christine, I was also going to say, I think, I think a lot of this, we have a lot more opportunity to find a wider variety of things but I also think that the way that marketing even in something like Spotify but in particular online streaming services and all of that I think it also pushes people into these very specific interests because it's trying to figure out okay well you listen to this thing or you watch this thing so you like this so I'm going to push you further into this area and recommend very similar things because I know it's what's going to keep you engaged and you see similar things on YouTube too But I I think that all of this is also creating more of that pop in pop culture. Everything is happening more in the moment, which has kind of interesting implications for moving forward if we do think about popular culture as reciprocal in terms of being influenced by and influencing broader culture. Because if it is just this kind of flashpoint, how much influence is it going to have long-term? Yeah,
0: and I think algorithmic fandom is something we're going to have to contend with more too in fan studies and popular culture studies for that sense of you know yes we have the social networking sites that allow us to connect with other fans and potentially learn new things but then fans tend to like this same thing or something very near it so these platforms then are set up to help us to find that because they wanna keep us on the platform. They wanna keep us consuming with them. So it is definitely something we have to contend with if we're hoping for in any way, trying to introduce non-normative gender and create, I guess, new stereotypes, which is actually a really bad idea, at least new norms maybe, but that's also kind of a bad idea. That's that's something I think we also have to wrestle with. Are we? Are we trying to create new stereotypes, new norms, and new ideas of what's appropriate? Or are we just trying to, you know, get people to stop thinking in stereotypes and norms? And I don't know if we have an answer totally to that yet.
1: Oh, sorry. Are we not back there to the idea of people don't like ambiguity? They don't like ambiguity, mm-hmm. whether it's in terms of narrative or gender representation, mm-hmm. you know, ambiguity is problematic, whereas, you know, whereas we might quite like it or, or whatever, or think it's brilliant in narrative in, in, in whatever form. Um, when it comes to particularly gender, gender and, and representation, ambiguity is highly problematic still, which is why I think it's the most interesting area and should be encouraged more, because I think I think people are more ambiguous in terms of their um, sexual identity and, and should be uh, condoned and, and represented at all times. But the problem lies in what do you do with that. How do you make that, you know, you were just saying, how do you make that a stereotype? How do you make ambiguity, particularly in terms of sexual behaviours, for example? You know, uh, pe- for some reason, people need to be very highly anchored into understanding that they, could, they know what they can see and they understand and comprehend it and it's not a massive surprise or unusual to them but but I, I don't know I, st- I still think there's room for much more ambiguity and was it like 20 years ago it was possible for you to interact with films so you could you could create the outcomes is that in video is that in video Christine it feels like a long time ago now that you could do that
3: yeah, so um, there there are a lot of games that do give you the opportunity to kind of shape which direction the narrative takes, obviously within the bounds provided by the developers. Um, but you, there has been a, a recent movement for movies to follow that similar format, like you saw with, um, I can't, uh, Bandersnatch, was that what it was called? The uh, Black Mirror oh, movie where it was Choose Your Own Adventure? Oh. Mm-hmm. So, yeah a little bit more of that coming in, which is also very interesting in terms of trying to figure out how popular culture fits into these broader ideas of identity and how people consume things.
0: Yeah, they actually tried that, uh, CBS tried that with a Hawaii Five-0 where they had three possible endings and they had the audience vote on which ending they wanted. And then as it was airing, you know, pre-taped, of course, CBS supposedly put in the winning ending and so you actually had one ending for the east coast and one ending for the west coast now supposedly and this again is for me where professional wrestling comes in because yeah do you actually know if that's real or not did they actually pay attention to the audience or are they just saying they pay attention to the audience it's always within those producers boundaries but i I just want to say one thing maybe in this we can use this for wrapping up um that idea of ambiguity going back to that and I'm not gonna speak towards other cultures because I only really know Western civilization cultures, but at least I know in Western civilization that idea of the gender binary in terms of visual cues has been so important to help us reduce uncertainty when it comes to communicating with one another, that I think that's partly why we see such a pushback to removing the binary because people don't want to have that uncertainty When it comes to, you know, just saying hi to someone or, you know, using a pronoun and things like that, they they, they don't want to embarrass themselves, they don't want to make someone else feel bad, and they don't want to hurt people. I I am hoping that's part of the explanation for this, but it it is going to be difficult then for us to embrace ambiguity when we are seeing someone and not have that um, expectation to know a gender or to know, you know, race and and to know sexual identity and to act with one another, not based on those demographics and those social identities, but to act on with one another based on, you know, fellow human being. And I don't think we're anywhere near ready to be interacting at that level of ambiguity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) thank you all for for coming today. any um, final thoughts, or uh, maybe final directions that you see we need to do more research in? Apart from ambiguity? Seems like a good one, yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm, I'm very interested in sort of the big data shaping what we see angle and how mm-hmm. that's going to influence things as we move forward, particularly in digital platforms.
0: Definitely.
2: I'm interested in this idea of media literacy with younger generations and how they perceive these stereotypes now that, you know, at least socially things have been changing in, as you said, in some Western cultures that we might be familiar with. At least there's still a lot of problems, but, you know, there's been some changes and maybe, you know, if um hopefully some sense of the education regarding these things is changing how they might be i don't know it might be easier for for them to perceive this ambiguity and live with this ambiguity in a sense and i think in, i think that this this idea of media literacy in connection to younger generations and ambiguity might be very interesting to, to explore
0: You all for for coming in today and coming in i guess um i think this was a wonderful conversation I've, I've had a lot of great thoughts brewing out of this one and now i just want to do a study on gender appropriateness and media literacy within the younger generations <laughs> so thank you for for coming and, and i hope i'll see you on a, a future pop culture dialogue
1: um, what will happen to this then carolyn
0: all right let me just stop recording